Yeah, but my shit was pretty average. I have all my fingers and toes. I didn't lose a limb. No buddy of mine died in my arms. I don't have a single episode where I'm constantly asking myself, why did I shoot this person and not that person? Why did I fail to do this? I think I had an average experience. Now it turns out that the average experience of war kind of sucks. Our guest on this episode is Brian Kastner. Brian is a former Air Force EOD officer who served two tours in Iraq. He is also the author of The Long Walk and All the Ways We Kill and Die. Brian has also written for Vice, The New York Times, Esquire, and The Atlantic. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death And I fear no evil because I'm blind in my mind, my gun, they comfort me Because I know I'll kill my enemies when they come I guess we'll start out with uh, the most basic questions. What made you decide to write The Long Walk and expose yourself to the world as a crazy person? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know I was uh, exposing myself to the world as a crazy person. If I'd known I was doing that, I don't think I would have written it, or at least in the way it ended up coming out. I knew I had to write something. I'd always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write a book someday, like uh, like I still want to hike Mount Everest someday, right? It's like this, this thing that I aspire to. Uh, but I never knew what to write about. I didn't think I had something worth writing. But the challenge of coming home from war, I needed to explain to myself what was happening to me. And I, I started writing first notes to myself, but very, very quickly I realized that maybe I had a story that other people would want to read. And I conceived of the, the idea of writing a book very quickly. Having said that, like who writes a book? Like I didn't, I didn't have any connections in the publishing world. I didn't know you needed an agent. Uh, I had not studied creative writing in college. I didn't know the quote right way to do this. What, what are the steps? I didn't know any writers. So I didn't want to have any delusions of grandeur that I was going to write this and find an agent and a publisher or whatever else. So I wrote it. I had like two ideas in my head at the same time. On one hand, I was trying to do the best job I could in case it ever found readers. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, it never will anyway. So I might as well, I'll, I'll just do the best I can. And if I can't sell it, then uh, sell it to a publisher. Well, then I just print out one copy and stick it on the shelf. And then my kids have it. And I thought, you know, my grandfathers in World War II, if they had written something like this, so I could see the war through their eyes, like what a family heirloom that would be, right? So it was worth it to me to do it no matter what happened with the manuscript. And instead, of course, I broke all these rules and found an agent right away and a publisher and whatever else. I sometimes think now, if I, if I could go back, um, would I have done it the same way? And the answer is probably no. I think I would have been self-conscious. Um, if I could do it over again, I might not use the word crazy uh, again. And the reason, I don't know. I, you end up, um, you know, when a book like this comes out and you get interviewed, then people expect you to speak for all veterans, which is, of course, you, you can't do. There's, you know, there's the War X Twitter account, which is makes I the love joke. The War X, yes. Everybody loves the War X. I, I, I don't know who the War X is. The War X speaks for all veterans, of course. Well, that's funny because it's not possibly true, right? But still, when you write a book about the coming home from war experience, 
people ask you questions like you speak for all veterans. And if I knew people were going to start like that, I would not have used the word crazy because I wouldn't, I don't care about myself. I wouldn't want to paint my fellow veterans with that brush. Sure. Kind of like the, the wounded warrior campaign, how that's been so prevalent that it's made people associate veterans post 9-11 vets with these like broken dudes. Like, right. And not to the same, obviously I'm not comparing you to their horrific organization who's fucked up a lot of shit. Because uh, you wrote a great book. <laughs> well, 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 thanks. I'll take that. I'll take that with the grain of salt you intend. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I don't think I would have used the same word. Having said that, I still don't have a better word. So there, the word I never use in the long walk ever is the word anxiety. And the reason I don't is because I didn't want it to be like a shorthand. I thought if the reader read the word anxiety, they would think, oh, I know what that is. And then they would either dismiss it or whatever else. Well, I've been anxious before. This wasn't anxiety. It was anxiety, yes, and grief and stress and fear and a physical reaction and all those other things I described. So I, I don't know. I don't have a better word. I might not have used that one. Maybe I would have come back to it after trying every other word. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I actually – me personally, like my stuff manifests as like these pretty intense anxiety attacks. So when I read the word crazy, like that's what I thought you meant. Like I thought you meant like, cause that's what I, like I have this, these in just moments of my heart's beating through my chest. Like I can't breathe. I think I'm dying. Like I really think I'm dying. Right. I have this, and it comes out of nowhere. I don't know what to do, how to stop it. So like when you say crazy, like I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, then maybe it's a good, maybe it's a good word. So that, that way everybody that reads it and has it's like, your own personal crazy. Yeah. That's, that yeah. has that personal experience. They can project, you know, their own experience into it, which is not what I intended, but it's a, like a tremendous compliment. You can't ask for a better compliment than for the reader to see something of themselves in this kind of book. Now, with that said, who in your mind is the ideal audience for the book? Is it other vets or is it the public who has no idea what any of us have gone through over there? Yeah, so there's two, I think as a writer, there's two ways uh, to look at that basic question. Some writers uh, think about this ideal reader, the best, smartest, most idealized person that could possibly read your stuff. And then you try to write for that idealized reader. And then there's a, another school of thought, which I admit is what I do, which is you just do the best job you can, and you try not to think about who's going to read it because you have no idea. It could so many different kinds of people from so many different backgrounds. So I wasn't aiming it at an audience and trying to say, well, I, I'm making this for veterans, but I'm not making it for the average public or the other way around. I tried to make it accessible so whoever picked it up and wanted to learn something about Iraq, bombs, the explosive ordnance disposal world, coming home from war, any of those kind of things, that it would be accessible. And there's things you can do as a writer to make it more accessible. I try to leave out the jargon. I try to explain terms instead of being very technical, you know. To, so I'm trying to draw in as many different people as possible. But I wasn't thinking, well, you know, I hope a four-star general or a senator or, you know, family members or uh, gold star families. Or I, I did not have any, like, super specific. So with that said, there. like, when you do public readings or book signings, what do you think you have more vets, more civilians? Yeah, so who I expected to come is not who comes to my book events. So just economically, the business model, um, women over 50 buy like half of all books. Right. So the people that come to my book events are people who buy books. So it's women over 50. And it's actually mostly Vietnam era women. And um, so it's, 
it's some veterans, but not necessarily lots of veterans. It's mostly just because statistically there are far more uh, male veterans in Vietnam than, than female. It tends to be uh, like wives of veterans, sisters of veterans. And after the book events, they want to talk about like when they broke up with their boyfriend in Vietnam and how they still think about that. They, they want to talk about, um, you know, their husband's troubles. Uh, they want to talk about, um, or, or it's now actually, it's also mothers of 9-11 veterans, right? So they want to talk about their kids and where their kids have been in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, whatever. And does that ever get old to you? No. I, well, it's the way I try to look at it is it's, uh, it's not my place to be put out. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. If, if somebody wants, I wrote a book, and if it means something to somebody else, and they want to come up to me and talk about their child that died or their, their brother who still struggles from Agent Orange or whatever else, then the least I can do is listen for three minutes and try to be present and empathetic and, I don't know, share and take that on just for, for a little bit. I think you'd have to be a really giant asshole for that to get old, at least the way I took it, the, the way you mean it, like, oh, I can't be bothered. No, you know? I mean, it's, it's like, do you ever get like compassion fatigue? Because like y- you've dealt with your own shit. Right. And like sometimes the last thing you need is like to be just piled on with. Yeah, but my shit was pretty average, right? Like I have all my fingers and toes. I didn't lose a limb. Uh, I didn't, I, nobody of mine died in my arms. I don't have like a single episode where I'm constantly asking myself, why did I shoot this person and not that person? Why did I fail to do this? I think I had an average experience. Now, it turns out that the average experience of war kind of sucks. Yeah. And so you can write right. a book about that, right? right. But I, I never feel now like, uh, please stay away and please stop talking to me uh, because I'm just going to have my own flashback, regression, whatever else. We were talking before we were recording about exposure therapy a little bit, and writing a book like this and talking about it over and over and over again is a bit of exposure therapy and being asked similar questions. They're not bad questions, but they're the right questions, and so you end up hearing them a lot. And figuring out the right answers to those and the like a way to talk about your own experience, what you end up doing is professionalizing it. And so you you create, I don't know, just a layer of scar tissue over it. If you want to see something totally cringeworthy, go on YouTube and look at Book TV. And it's the, the very first book event I ever did was recorded and put on Book TV on C-SPAN. And I can't get through the reading. Like, I can't read the book um, without getting emotional. And, you know, it's been five and a half years. And so... Yeah, you get those layers of scar tissue, and it's it's just not as raw as it used to be. So another probably cliched question that you've gotten a million times, but I'm super interested in this because I'm married. Right. When you wrote this book and you're done with it, I mean, it's it's personal, right? You talk right. about your marriage a lot. I assume your wife has read it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but she did not read it before I found an agent or even before I sold it. And actually, my editor, Jerry Howard at Doubleday, one of the first things he said was, she's read it, right? And I'm like, uh, no. And he's like, yeah, so we need to fix that immediately. Were you nervous about her reading it? Were you? Yeah, when I wrote it, I was not in the place where I could take any criticism of that book because any criticism of that book would have been criticism of me, like down to my core yeah. as a human being. Criticism of your experience. Almost. Yes. And so I couldn't take it from anyone, even my wife. And- as a writer, 
years later, I've developed a much thicker skin, but at the time I was not in that place. Um, you say it's a cliche, cliched question, but it's, it's the right question and it's a good question. And it's a question I think that a lot of writers and veterans think about is uh, you have this experience and you, it's easy to navel gaze on it and it sucked, um, but it sucked for your spouse and kids too. And the thing I struggled with, because originally my wife was hardly mentioned, she was in the book, but like only a little bit. And one of the main edits uh, was to add more of my wife in. And I was really hesitant because I didn't want to presume to speak for her. I could like barely figure out my own experience, much less tell her that this is how she felt at a certain time. And I also wasn't in the position to like interview her. Right. or something and do like a collaborative thing. I think I could do that kind of collaborative thing now. And and with the opera, you know, she's involved in the opera. And one great thing about the opera of The Long Walk is that uh, Jesse as a character is on stage almost as much as, as my character is. And the opera gives her a voice I was not able to in the book, if that makes sense. Yeah. W- was it after rewrites that you added like you know, the conversation she had with her grandmother or laying in bed, crying herself to sleep or saying she wishes she would just cheat on her and be over with. Was yeah, that kind so, of the stuff you added? Yeah, so, some of that. I think I, now I don't think I could go line by line and tell you what was in there before and what was in there afterwards. Um, well, after I guess, that, I guess the bigger edit. question is like, did you consult with her before you put her more heavily in it of what was okay to put not censored necessarily, but... No, it's uh, because a marriage is more important than a book, or at Absolutely. least my, my marriage was more important than a book. And I didn't ask for permission, and I wish I had. Um, and I wrote it the way I needed to write it, and I focused on me and my needs. And that feels, uh, if I'm honest with myself and you, that that feels pretty selfish now. And at the time, I didn't know what else to do. Um, so she appears in my second book, In All the Ways We Kill and Die, and that was much different. That was, you know, I, I talked to her about every scene that she was in, and we talk about every, every bit of that. And it was much more, I treated her much more the way I would a subject in any of my other books or any of my other writing. Like I, I fact-checked it, and I, uh, I, you know, tried to talk about it from different angles to make sure I got it right. Um, but this is the, you know, so Matt Gallagher, uh, who's another fellow veteran uh, writer. He's written a couple great books, Young Blood and uh, Kaboom was his war memoir. He and I have spoken about how we learn to write in public, if that makes sense. You know, where we, um, a lot of our initial professional writing uh, is out there for, you know, for people to read, which is great, which is a gift, but which it also means that I would not, I would not write the same way again. And one of those things is, you know, just on a personal note, writing without including my wife the same way. How many kids do you have? I've got four boys. Uh, they are purposely barely in uh, the long walk, but uh, one of them just turned 20 and the youngest is nine. The 20-year-old has read it? I think he still has not. And the younger ones haven't either. And for a while, they I said that I didn't want them to read it. And now if they wanted to, I don't know, It's there's distance. You know, time... Time does heal a lot of wounds. That, sure. that cliche is true. And I, I think that we would um, we would have a very different discussion about that book now than we would have when it first came out. Having said that, they, uh, they haven't seen the opera either. But for the opening of it, which was in Saratoga a couple summers ago, we didn't want them involved. Like it's a 
my children have an opera of their childhood. It was a, it's not the happiest of subject, but it's still like a pretty amazing, you know, a gift that they've been given. And I wanted them to at least experience some of it. And so they came to a, um, a dress rehearsal and my boys lasted about a minute and a half before they were like too much emotional overload. It's like, it's a, it's a mind job for anybody to see themselves on stage, much less this kind of story. Right. So that was a minute and a half and probably about 60 seconds too much. And that was, that was good. And I think maybe like, I don't know. I did write this book for my kids, but like some theoretical 30-year-old future version. Right. Like when they're fathers themselves and are able to— When they're Iraq vets themselves. <laughs> that's, that's the direction we're going, right? When they're, when they're veterans of Mali and the Philippines right. and uh, Iran and whatever, what's the next, whichever the next one is. Yeah. And they're able to look on it in a different way. So I don't want to go in chronological order and go through the book scene by scene, but like the beginning, near the beginning, something struck me and I'd wish you had unpacked it more because it was like one of those moments that I was just, it confused me, it scared me. So you're sitting through some sort of briefing and what was your job prior to EOD again? In the Air Force, uh, they called it disaster preparedness, but it was basically nuke biochem defense. CBRN. Yeah, CBRNE is the new catchphrase, but you know, in the Army, Chemical Corps kind of stuff, yeah. how to wear your gas mask. So you're sitting in this briefing, and there's these dudes up front, and they're talking about how they believe that bin Laden was in possession of a couple of suitcase nukes. Right. And you use that to set the scene of, you're like, oh, that shit's cool. I want to do EOD. To me, like, I was like, whoa, stop. Let's unpack this. Like, I didn't <laughs> right. know there was a point where we thought bin Laden had two suitcase nukes. This was like two weeks after 9-11. Or maybe a month after. I don't know. It was like in the middle of the anthrax stuff, and we're invading Afghanistan, and we're in Saudi Arabia. So uh, bin Laden said one reason you know, that he wanted to attack the United States, attacking the faraway, the distant Satan, is because we had troops in the land of the holy places, which is Saudi Arabia, of course. So we figured we were a target. Uh, that is one of those like funny, I don't know, I talk about this a little bit in my second book, rumor intel and how there were classified rumors and the classified rumors were sometimes even more powerful than, I don't know, than like the actual right. like, information that you had. I have no idea whatever happened to that. I'm going to call it a classified rumor, but it was- Did some... it get talked about a lot? Like, cause it seems like that was not something you bring up once casually and then just- not speak of again. It's like these dudes with beards showed up and showed us what it looked like. And then, I don't know. It's like, good luck if you see it. Like hopped on the horse and rode off into the sunset. It was a weird time where I think people truly believed anything could happen. If the tower, if New York was attacked and the Pentagon was attacked, then anything was possible. And there's anthrax floating around. So this is just another one of those things that, well, of course this could happen. And your first thought when you hear this is like, oh, I'd fucking love to be the guy that disarms that thing. It's not that I'd love to do it. It's that, you know, for me, it was like this amazing thing. And for the EOD guys, it was Tuesday. Yeah. Like, like oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, you start yeah, with yeah, we up that. front. They're asking questions, like the technical shit. Right. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You've, you've thought about this before? Yeah. So it was, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be part of a club where that's like the kind of things that they thought about and worked on. There's definitely a coolness thing. I was what? I was 20... Four, I was 25. Like, it was, coolness was a part of it. Like, I was in the Army. Like, we'd see OD guys walking around with their fucking beards and hats right. and boots unbloused and not giving a shit what Sergeant Major thought or said. Like, and it was always, there was a very cool factor there to it. 
Yeah, for us, it was uh, the beard thing was definitely Afghanistan. I was pre-beard. I had to wait to grow my beard until I got out and became a contractor. It was like the contractors had beards. So when I was a contractor, I had a beard. We were in the middle of the flight suit fight where we wore the flight suit to say, fuck you to the sergeant major Ah. instead of having the mustache or whatever else. Yeah, it's a EOD stands for a lot of things, uh, explosive ordnance disposal, but also egos on demand. Yeah. And that's for real. So like my most vivid memory of an EOD, we had a Canadian EOD. I was in Afghanistan. We were out in Kunar province. Right. We had this Canadian, I don't know why we had a Canadian EOD guy, but he was old. He was like, I don't know. I mean, I was 23, so he was probably like 36 or whatever. Right. But he he looked old as fuck. And an RPG comes in and we had, it was a gravel and it goes in and it didn't detonate. And I was like, oh shit, like, what are we going to do? We just got, I guess we got to stay away from that from now on. Like, we'll never go over there. Well, this guy like goes over and maybe you can tell me what he's doing. He took all his shit off and he goes over and he lays on the ground, like puts his head down. He's like listening for something. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm listening for something. But he like doesn't elaborate on that. What the fuck are people listening for when RPGs land in the ground? I have no idea. I wish I had, like, I should give you some pithy thing. He's listening for the war axe to come, <laughs> like, whisper in his ear and say what to do. Uh, I have never put my ear next to an RPG and listened for anything. That is not in the manual. Because, like, we just had these rumors, like, oh, I guess he's listening to see if it's armed and it's making a noise or something. It's probably something like that. Yeah, see, that's cool a classified rumor, too. Yeah. There was a— uh, I mean, he ended up blowing the shit up, but I guess— Yeah, so everybody has classified rumors. It. Do you know uh, the jihadists we were fighting— put tinfoil over the ends of their RPGs because they thought it would penetrate the force field, uh, that we were u- our jammers were making force fields that would get our RPGs to stop working. And if you covered them with tinfoil, they'd be able to pierce that and hit the vehicle. Oh, that's funny. Everybody's got classified rumors. Yeah, there was one. We were at this place, Asadabad. It was sitting down at the foot of a ridge, and it was just at a weird angle from the opposing ridge lines. And it would take, I ah, fuck, hundreds of rockets and maybe one or two hit inside the perimeter and so there was ICOM chatter, and, and like the Taliban, we called him Johnny Jihad at the time. That's probably not the preferred nomenclature in PC culture today, but that's what we called him. But they, like, we called, and they were convinced that we had some invisible bubble that surrounded right. the FOB that was impenetrable by rockets. So they had their own classified rumors, I guess, as well. Yeah, ICOM chatter is the source of half the classified rumors in the U.S. military, I think. Yeah. yeah ICOM chatter will say anything. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. That's the thing about like, like nothing— you never know what the fuck is true over there and what's false. Like we also was like constantly like, oh, we're they're planning on overrunning us any day now for a whole year. You know what I mean? Like you catch that shit. Well, that's one of the uh, I think those truths of war is that your worst fear. Uh, it's easy to imagine that it's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. And, you know, and so you end up find you end up convincing yourself. You can find evidence. Right. Of it. If you want. That right. That's what's coming. Another thing I thought was interesting, like really struck out to me is when you talk about when you're ripping out another unit's coming in, and I didn't really think about this, but uh, this idea of like paying for the sins of the units before you, like not for what you were going to fuck up and do, but what for they had done. If I'd thought that at the time, it would have scared the shit out of me thinking, all right, they're got to deal with our shit. And then the shit they do is going to compound and we come back 18 months later, like we're going to have to deal with that shit as well. Like you say, at that point, we'd been in Iraq five years. Like we didn't have five years of experience. We had one one year of experience five times, but the Iraqis had five years of compounded memories over that. Right. Now we have 17 one years of experience. Yeah. Yeah. They have to, uh, you know, the, the people living there, uh, obviously, they, they just, they, they can wait us out. They have to have endless patience to obviously deal with, you know, we get to go home and they, home is the war. And it's, um, 
this this idea of of paying for the for the sins of of who came before you know it wasn't it was only like late in afghanistan that even special forces units started to go back to the same area and i started to realize at a certain point that are we are we trying to win this war? I, I feel like I should put that in finger quotes. Win, yeah. uh, since we didn't really know what what that meant. Are we trying to win this war, or are we trying to make sure that everybody gets enough rest? And if we showed up knowing that we're not allowed to go home until like this area is, I don't know, what's the standard? Uh, peaceful. There's no more Taliban there. Whatever else. Like, are we willing to fight for three years, five years, ten years, the way they fight for three years, five years, ten years? This is the, that fundamental insight is that there was no way to win the war by killing because every person you killed, you know, all the cousins and brothers and nephews and whatever else would, would instantly, you know, become your enemy at that time. So at a certain point you realize that like the, the guy that I'm shooting at, you know, there's some little kid running ammo to him. Right. And then you're shooting at that kid 10 years later, right? Yeah. Because now he's 17 and like he's some little kid is running ammo for him. What year did you first go over to Iraq? Oh, five. Oh, five. So and you had mentioned that like Afghanistan's almost over. Right. Because none of us had any idea that this shit was going to last 17 years. Like as far as you guys were concerned, you'd miss the opportunity in Afghanistan. Like that was done. Iraq is your best chance to get in there and see it. Yeah. And you better get to Iraq quick. At what point did you realize these were, as you put it, one of the, the forever wars? Like yeah, I mean, lots of people have called it the forever war, um, and unfortunately, that that term tends to be more and more accurate as we as we go. Right? Um, I think it was between my two Iraq tours that in '05, when I got there, there was a sense you better get there while you can, and in '06, it was shit. This is never going to be done. Um, and I got out in '07 because at that point, I had eight years in the military, and so. 12 more years of military service seemed to mean 10 more tours. Like there, there's just not yeah. going to be an end to this. But I became a contractor and, you know, I was a contractor during the Iraq and Afghanistan surges. And I don't know, that seemed like a perpetual self-looking ice cream cone as well. Like it was just never going to, um, it was just never going to stop. And obviously it's like downsized, but it's like downsized and shifted, and it's really only the American footprint that downsizes. And now, you know, what, one of the things about going to Mosul, uh, which I did a couple months ago, is like that was like the largest scene of urban combat in decades. Um, and we had we the U.S. military had some uh, special operations troops there, but it was really like like mass Iraqi army versus Islamic State fighters and involved as many people as it ever did when I was in Iraq, uh, more even, and more deaths and more bombing. And, you, you know, made Fallujah look small when sure. the Marines went into Fallujah, right? And yet it's almost all out of the papers because, you know, there's a few American casualties and that's it. And another piece you wrote in Time, uh, The Hard Lessons the War Learned from Terror, you talk about, uh, you know, the pre-9-11 terror campaigns going on in the 70s, the 80s, like the IRA and the, the leftist movements and stuff right. like that. And that you could only stop those by, you know, fully denouncing those core set of principles and ideologies and making it impossible for them to recruit more martyrs, right? Right. And I think you posit the same thing. That's how, you know, fundamental Islamists, that's how we stop this as well. But like, do you think there's a realistic path to that? You this day and age with this political climate, with this president, with this footprint geographically of U.S. troops everywhere? Well, with those caveats, no. But ultimately, it is a war of ideas where people just have to want something different. 
and without getting into a big, you know, historical discussion, you know, we're, we're, the the jihadists of today is the dividends of uh, Saudis funding Wahhabism around the world, and before that, the Muslim Brotherhood and writings from you know from leaders a century ago. Like it took a long time to get to the point where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of young men want to fight for this kind of cause. So if it took a long time to build up those ideas. It's going to take a long time to get rid of them. And, and that just feels like a monumental task when you put it that way. Like maybe 100 years from now, you know, historians are writing about this ebb and flow of um, even the concept of jihad as being a violent thing is instead of, instead of an inside internal personal struggle. There's another side of this, though, too. Elliot Ackerman, uh, who's a friend and uh, fellow writer, he lived in Turkey for a while and wrote a lot about uh, people going to Syria through Turkey to join ISIS. And he says, in the United States, we tend to see ourselves as the center of every story. And so if all this stuff is happening in Turkey and Syria and whatever else, we say, well, it must be about us. And in reality, we're one of many players there, and not every story is mostly about us. And there's a civil war going on inside Islam um, between Sunni and Shia in Iran and Saudi Arabia. And yeah, not to make a left turn into like giant geopolitical kind of things. But the United States is only part of that. Sometimes we make it worse. Often we make it worse. Once in a while, we hopefully make it better. Uh, we exasperate the problem, but it's, it's way more than just us interacting with that part of the world. Right. Like the West has this sort of um, self-centered mentality of like, there's been several Western attacks since 9-11, right? But right. academically, everyone should at least should at least know that Almost all the violence perpetrated by Islamic extremists has been done to other Muslims. Yes, absolutely. Uh, like overwhelming majority of it. Do you think that's how this all ends, that that comes to a head and there's some big, some big Islamic revolution where one side wins or doesn't? Yeah, I don't know if I'm qualified to give an answer to that, but I'll, I'll tell a story that I do think I'm qualified to give. So when I was in Mosul a couple months ago, um, I spent a lot of time with like average Iraqi army soldiers. And, and here's how that would go. I'm there with, uh, with my fixer, who's my interpreter and my driver and setting things up, whatever else. And so they're translating for me. Uh, Hello. They say they introduce themselves. Oh, who are you? Oh, I'm, I'm American. I'm a journalist. Oh, uh, it's very good to meet you. Thank you for coming to Iraq. All of my family was killed by ISIS. Uh, I seen a video with my cousins and brothers where they are locked in a cage and lowered in a vat of boiling oil, and I saw them die before my eyes on this video, and I watched that video every single day so I can keep hatred in my heart to kill as many ISIS fighters as possible. This is the introduction. I've been speaking to these people for 30 seconds, and this is where we go. So there's an entire generation um, that, that's grown up with that experience. And what I saw in Iraq is once they're done killing ISIS, the army was like looking for, well, who are we going to fight next? And there's just a lot of young men with guns that are looking for somebody to shoot at. And for economic reasons and historical and colonial, and I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I was both hopeful that the Iraqi army like became competent and professionalized enough to be able to you know, win this war largely with, I mean, with airstrikes, but they really got organized to do this. And on the other hand, there's now hundreds of thousands of these kids with guns. And like, what's, what's next? And they're bored. Now they're standing patrol. 
Yeah. You know, they're standing at the checkpoint. And this is when the Kurdish referendum happened and suddenly the Kurds and Arabs are shooting at each other. And, you know, there's proxy wars all over the Middle East. And I just don't I don't see good news coming for my lifetime. Yeah. And, and that's nothing unique to Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or Lebanon or anywhere. Right. Like what happens to young men who've been victims of violence who are bored that have guns? I mean, we've seen it in our own country. We've seen it. Yes. We see it everywhere. Like yeah. it's just bad news. The number one predictor of uh, a country's stability is the uh, jobless rate for young men. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's, it's what do you do with the young men? And that's, you know, because they turn violent. So another thing you mentioned in the book was this anti-war art show that you'd gone to. Yeah, yeah. Was the, the, the theme of one of the, the pieces that when faced with combat, a soldier's only noble option is suicide? Yeah, that Something if you that effect? It, it was the, that's how I took the text on the wall. I should say that like some some artists in Buffalo have gone to, back to me since, and they said, you know, the artist would be mortified if he thought that's what you took from it, because like th- this was a piece about peace, and you know, it, he did not intend that at all. But the way that I read the text was basically, if you are a soldier and you are in war, and your choice is to kill somebody else or kill yourself the morally responsible thing to do is to take your own life. Did that, you interpret it that way? Were you projecting that, you think? I hope not. I don't know. I, I was not having, um, I was not really suicidal before then, um, but it got me to think about it in a new way. Uh, and if that's really what, if, if that's not just how I took it, if that's what the text actually said, it's just like, like that in and of itself is like morally irresponsible, you know, to, um, there are other options. I feel like I need to say that. There are other options for soldiers and veterans. Oh, absolutely. You know, obviously, besides um, besides suicide, there's conscientious objectors and everything else, you know. So, like, there's um, – what am I trying to say? I had not thought about suicide and it put the idea in my head. And I don't think that I was having such a break from reality that it was, like, in there and I read something that really wasn't there. I, maybe I misinterpreted, but I don't think I was, like – projecting text on the wall do you now or did you at the time like and this is not a real kosher thing to say um some people probably get pissed by this so if you don't want to answer it's too controversial you don't have to but have you ever thought that maybe like you're crazy my anxiety you know jamie's issues whatever like that we as volunteer soldiers that were eager as young men to get to iraq and afghanistan that we kind of fucking brought this on ourselves uh, I don't know how controversial that is uh, or non-politically correct or whatever else. We did bring it on ourselves. I, I remind myself of that all the time, that I chose this. I chose this path for myself. I am at the end result of my own actions. I am at the end result of my own decisions. Nobody drafted me. Nobody forced me to do it. It is also true that I didn't know what I was choosing. It's also true that most young people, men and women, don't know what they're choosing when you're 18 years old and you're full of hormones and your brain isn't really formed yet and you're bad at decision making and you're willing to take risks, there will always be 18-year-olds with that physiological and chemical cocktail combination ready to go do things like get shot at and shoot other people without considering the consequences. Because, I don't know, evolution and biology and medicine tells us that young people are not in a position to think long term about, well, what is this going to mean when I'm 40? So you are choosing it, and you're also not in a great position to know what you're choosing. I'm not saying that should relieve anybody of the responsibility of it. And I'm glad that we have an all-volunteer military. 
but I've, I've never thought that I got hoodwinked. If I was lied to, I was lying to myself as much as anything. Sure. Because, yeah, like none of us knew like what war is, right? Like, but we knew enough. Like, we had seen war movies and we knew they were bad. Like, like war yeah, doesn't seen look war movies. Fun. Some war movies are actually right, too. Like, so I want to ask you about that. Like, The Hurt Locker, for instance. How do you feel not, that movie not portrays right. EOD? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's not an example of one that's particularly right. So the, the, I, have, I have mixed feelings about The Hurt Locker. So let me say this everybody would want their job to be immortalized in a film that wins Best Picture. And as a piece of art, it is incredible. It is, it is a great movie and it is a great achievement. But if you are looking for realism, the first three minutes and the last three minutes are perfect and everything in between is Hollywood. And that movie pissed off a lot of bomb techs because, well, it made us look like cowboys. And uh, nobody's ever said, I'm going to take the bomb suit off. To, you know, I'd rather die comfortable uh, and all those kind of things. Like we, we were losing way too many folks by being as safe as humanly possible and not taking risks. And so, yeah, that it's, it was the cowboy attitude that bothered people. So what, what are some of the, you think they get it right? Oh, um, films that get it right. So I'll give you an example. Like I saw Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, I haven't seen that. It was fucking horrific. Right. And from my grandfather was in the Pacific and from like what, he, like that's what, I mean, he would tell me that it was fucking horrific. Like, and I saw that I was like, oh, that's my, what he must have right. meant by that. So the movie that I would go to that say gets it right is actually Full Metal Jacket. Uh, mm. Not because tactically, like I could give you movies where like the tactics are correct, right? Like if, and if you're in, if you're a gun guy and into that, like they clear the rooms correctly. That's not really what I'm thinking of. I'm trying to think of the movie that gets the feeling right to me is the important part. And Full Metal Jacket is both violent and unrepentant about it. And then also completely absurd. And I, I would have moments... For me, the, the war moments, moments that stick with me are the absurd ones and not necessarily like the feeling really scared uh, and I'm about to die kind of stuff. Like, yeah, sure, that too. But like the stories that I tell, it's things like stopping a convoy to buy a watermelon. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that would happen in Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Right? You know, I want my picture taken with the watermelon guy. Yeah. That's the... Um, the thing about war that always got me was was the absurdity of the situation in which we found ourselves. Sure. Sure, that's fair. Let's talk about the foot in the box. <laughs> right. That's, that seems to be an absurdity. It is an absurdity. Uh, the scene that I, since we're talking about movies, the scene that I had in mind uh, when I was writing the foot in the box is actually Saving Private Ryan and on the beach where the guy has his arm blown off. He goes and finds it. And, and, he, and he's looking for it because he needs to pick it up and take it with him. And... Uh, obviously, that came out before I went to war, but my thought was, that seems reasonable. That seems like what I would do. And the foot in box was the same thing. There's a foot lying in the middle of uh, what is otherwise just a completely uh, devastated, everything is red and wet and dripping, and nothing is in a decent-sized piece except the foot. Well, of course you're going to pick up the foot and put it in a box. Seems reasonable. Yeah. What, what you know, else what are you going to do with it? What, what else are you going to do with it? And and yet coming upon like in the middle of a blast scene, like a folding table and a cardboard box and a foot inside of it, like just kind of happening upon that, like you're going on about your day is the absurdity. Another thing I found to be absurd in a different sort of way. One of the scenes you said you paint in the book is uh, you're going out to the EFP factory trying to find and you find it's just a it's just a shop that's automotive repair parts whatever, and you come back and some fucking 
high-speed battle captain wants to get in your ass about not bringing back these people's livelihood, right? right. And you make this argument that these people they have every right in the world to maintain their livelihood and keep their, keep their job, keep their materials. Uh, he's not happy about that. He's not happy about that. And the absurdity in that to me is that we are in a war that we've all been telling ourselves in every conceivable way possible that our goal is to win the hearts and minds of these people. Right. But what he wanted you to do was to put these people in a position where they would never, ever, for any reason, be friendly to us ever again. Yeah, I mean, so so what happens in that scene is we're looking for EFPs, and there's all these machine shops, and there's all the what they would do is they would take like old rusting cylinder sleeves for giant truck engines, and then stick them on the lathe and clean them up to put them back in new engines, right? And there are thousands of these everywhere, and it would just take dump trucks and dump trucks to like load them all up, and we'd be there for three days doing nothing but picking up cylinder sleeves and all the lathes and everything else. So on the one hand, you're absolutely right. You take all that stuff and what you've done is pissed off an entire neighborhood that no longer has their jobs and source of income and everything else. On the other hand, the battle captain's right because those things do get turned into improvised bombs and claymores and stuff. And we did see them and people got hurt and killed from stuff that came out of that factory. So both of those things are true at the same time. Right. So what do you do about it? Right. So it's like this catch 22. Right. Speaking of absurd yeah. books. Right. So what do you do? Like, how do you win hearts and minds? Like, how do you, I don't, I don't know. And that's something I've, I've been on this, like, kind of kick lately about, I've t- talked to a lot of buddies, like, can we ever win a war that one of the primary objectives is to win the hearts and minds? Because, like, World War II, we won that decisively, right? Right. Dresden, that was not a campaign to win hearts and minds. No. Firebombing Tokyo was not a campaign to win hearts and minds. Like, if we don't have the authority and, like, the option to just go all out, like, are we just destined to be in quagmires? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think you can bring democracy or um, happy feelings at the end of a gun. And so uh, I've become very disillusioned, I don't know, convinced, whatever the right word is, that, um, yes, that the, the goal is fundamentally absurd. And I think after a still, 17 years later, we don't know what winning looks like. I, it, I asked when I was there, I continue to ask now, what is winning in Afghanistan? And what is winning in Iraq? And what is winning in Syria? What conditions exist there such that we can say we won? And if, if you can name that and say, well, we want a generally stable government and whatever else, then what, you, then what the U.S. military's job is to do is actually not to take the cylinder sleeves. It's not to kill those people. It's not to remove their livelihood. It's actually to drive around and get shot at until such point that you've established enough security that you can leave and not get shot at anymore. Your job is to be a target that's helping out until the locals, you know, fix it for themselves. And But how do you tell uh, anybody or anybody's kids, yes, your job is to drive around the country and bleed because shooting back is fundamentally at odds with what we're trying to build here. Right. Well, and particularly, like, it's even further a catch-22, like in Afghanistan— you want to establish security. You you, you don't want to take these people out of the hood. But Afghanistan, they don't, they've got one export, and it's opium. And when are we burned all that shit, right? right. So we've created a condition where the way they put food on the table is because the Taliban paid them 50 bucks to shoot a rocket at you, right? Like right. So as long as you are eradicating the only way these people can possibly take care of themselves, like how are you ever going to make it possible for the Afghans to secure their fellow countrymen when their fellow countrymen have no other job. Because it's not like joining the army is the answer because those guys don't even get paid. And when they do get paid, they get paid six months late and half of what they're supposed to get paid. 
Um, I mean, I can give you the official answer. The official answer is the U.S. military shows up at that village. It stops the Taliban from uh, from killing those people. We convince them to plant wheat instead. They grow wheat. The Taliban doesn't kill them. The Taliban tries to kill us. Uh, We kill the people that are doing the paying instead of the ones getting paid because there's almost an infinite number of people willing to take 50 bucks to go and put a bomb at the side of the road. I, I'd do the same thing right. if, if I were in their shoes. So you kill the people doing the paying. And if we can kill all the people, that's, that's a much smaller group, and then keep these other people alive. And then it's some soldier's job to sit in that village and get shot at while other soldiers kill the money men. And we've been trying to do that for 17 years. I read an interesting theory, and I'd like to hear your take on this. Uh, one of the ways that this person posited we could possibly win the war, the first step would be to take every Iraqi and Afghan government official and co- basically collude with the rest of the world to strip all of them their dual citizenship, where now they are forced to stay in that country. Like, there's no, they don't have an exit plan for them and their families. Uh, so they've got to be forced to kind of deal with the shit that's going on there. You think that would help any? Yeah, I don't know what the, about forcing or that particular policy, but there is, there is a real struggle in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria uh, that there's a huge brain drain with everybody with means and an education has long since left. And so who is still in the country are the poor and desperate who couldn't leave or people who are trying to take advantage of that situation. And it's not necessarily the best and brightest. And that's the, I don't know, we, we helped make that, that situation as we well. We sure did. Of course. Sorry to this make this all depressing and shit. Yeah, yeah, this is an uplifting podcast you guys So got here. let's talk about something a little more uplifting. This article you wrote about... Um, What's it like to fight a war, be black in America? Okay. Dude, I really, I really like this one a lot. Uh, so, good friend of mine, Father Paul Abernathy, who is now a Orthodox priest, was also an engineer during the first invasion of Iraq. Weird path he took, but cool one nonetheless. And now he works in Pittsburgh, on, and his, he came up with this concept. I don't know if he developed it, but he's, he's been one of the national leaders on it, of community-informed trauma. Uh, and you, you mentioned this article, and this is his big thing, is what kids in these neighborhoods are seeing on a daily basis, like throughout their lives, is what we dealt with in combat, right? So like the, the experience, the trauma of being shot at, watching your literal or figurative brothers die in front of you or around you on the streets are very much one and the same. And the American people's response is, oh, I can't imagine. And that's the way they've absolved themselves of having to really look at, analyze, and try to figure out a way to, like, solve these issues. So right. I'd, like to, I'd like to talk about that some. Like, how—so you were at a—was it a, was it a book signing, a reading? I was, I was doing a book event, uh, and I forget where, um, but I was doing the reading and talking about all the things that you just said, uh, trauma and violence and all this kind of stuff. And, I mean, it was, it was an audience member, uh, an African-American guy from Philly, who said, do you think— your trauma is similar to my trauma and the reasons that you just said. And so, like, he reached out, and that, that was the empathy bridge. Because like you said, I think the big struggle is getting over this, I can't imagine. And of course, I'm writing books because I want people to imagine. Right. Like, I'd you like also you mentioned to... there was a room full of white people just nodding their heads when you're speaking, like, but the black guy spoke up. Right, yes. Now, I, there's a danger here in conflating you know, being a white guy, suburban white guy who volunteers, like we were talking before, to go to war and having this experience, um, th- conflating that with being born poor minority in Detroit or Baltimore or whatever else um, and not having 
the agency and the choice, obviously, or the privilege that I did to even to choose this. Like this is, um, they're not choosing that situation. That this is the this is the world that they're brought in on. So like parts of this don't line up, but the part that does, I think, is that all a war is really, if you distill it down, is violence and grief. And if you've experienced violence and grief, you've committed violence, you've had violence committed to you, uh, you've done things that you didn't want to do, you've had these terrible things happen, you've watched it happen, and then you've grieved that you've either done it yourself or that you've lost people over this. Like, there's no, nobody's winning a trophy for who gets, who's got the most, right. or who's got it best, or whatever else. Like, violence and grief is violence and grief. And when I do book events, I, I, we talked about how, like, who shows up. I mean, people want to talk about when they lost a sister in a car crash as much as they want to talk about war. Modern civilization is trying to remove as much violence and grief from our lives as humanly possible, right? So we, we're constantly— and that's arguably a good thing. It's arguable—of course it's a good thing. Uh, but it also creates this gap where we say, I can't imagine what it's like to grow up in Baltimore. I can't imagine what it's like to grow up in Aleppo. I can't imagine what it's like to, uh, to join the military and go, you know, fight a war in whatever place. And if you can't imagine what it's like, well, then you're not very invested in, I don't know, the war, the uh, uh, improving the conditions of any of these people, everything else. It's, it's something that happens outside you, and then it's easier to go on about your life with as little violence as grief as possible and ignore as much that's happening everywhere else. Yeah, so the danger there, you say, I can't imagine, is when you say, I can't imagine, and don't try. And don't try. Or, and people say, I can't imagine, and I think a lot of times they mean well, like they don't want to presume upon your experience. But I, again, I, I would like you to try to yeah. imagine. That's why we have art. <laughs> That's, it, art is supposed to help you try to imagine all sorts of things that don't normally happen in your life Absolutely. and break outside of yourself. All right, something more uplifting. I think that the number one thing I wish somebody had told me that nobody did was that it gets better. I didn't know it would get better. I thought that being crazy was permanent. I had seen, this is the stereotype, the, the crazy Vietnam veteran that's hiding underneath their kitchen table and uh, because they expect mortars to be coming in. And that that's like a permanent affliction. And I thought that if I was diagnosed with this or if I, um, if I was having these feelings, that it would never go away and the never going away was the part that just reinforced, self-reinforced it and, and made it worse and worse and would spin me up like a top. The idea that talking or running or, there, I mean, there's a million therapy outlets there, but I think talking is a, re is a really big one. Um, some people need medication. Not everybody needs medication. The fact, just saying that the reason we want you to talk is because you will feel different and it does get better and it's slow. What's the point of talking if it's not gonna, if it's not gonna help, the only thing that you get by talking with your wife is uh, scaring her away, bringing on a divorce. Um, you know, they think negative of you, ruining that relationship. Like only bad things can come from that. And so the wall, if the wall makes you functional, and you can't imagine anything ever getting better, then why would I, why would I upset this apple cart? So I wish, I wish somebody had said that it gets better. Um, I think that like we've talked a little bit about art, whether that's movies or books or whatever else, having the spouse 
um, have a shared experience where they read the same book or see the same movie or or go to the same art gallery or whatever, and then give them something shared to talk about as a way to like break down how do you get them to talk. I think that can be helpful, not always, not for everyone, um, but it, it can a little bit. This thing that you said about the one reason you think the book is effective is because I wrote it when I was sick. I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but you're absolutely right. And every book is a time capsule in some way, but this book is really a time capsule. Like I would never, we talked a little bit about using the word crazy or not. Putting that aside for a second, I would never be able to write this book again. I would never write it, or if I did, it wouldn't come out the same way. And things were happening to me. My son has his hockey game in the morning, and then I write that chapter or that section of the chapter in the afternoon. And it's almost verbatim, like my original draft is what's, is what's come out. So it, it's very much this book is the experience of about six or eight months of active reflection on this is what happened to me in the war and what kind of person am I afterwards. Uh, when, I, when I told my wife, Jessie, that I wanted to write this book, she said, okay, well, I quit my job as a contractor or I really scaled it down uh, and I was going to write full time. And she said, you have a year to write this and then you're going to go get a real job like at Target like something where you wake up in the morning and go to work and come home. No more of this contractor stuff, no more of this military stuff. So that was powerful incentive. I finished that book in 11 months. Like I, I got done on time um, because of her enforced deadline. So that even tightens it up even more. It really is a very, it's a very small window. And, and things do get better and I got better and that book is starting to be there's this interesting experience where it is more distant for me than it is for readers now. And this is always true with books, but I'm to the point where I have to read some, I have to go back and read it to know what's in it. And that was the whole point of writing it in the first place is that I had all of these active memories of the war, the day of six V beds, buying the watermelon, the, the EFP factory, Kermit, all this stuff. It was in the forefront of my brain, and I was remembering it all day long, and it's all I was thinking about. And writing it down gave me permission to forget, to put it in its place and put it away. It worked. It, it worked to the point where, like, there's parts of that book that I, I need to read to know what's in there. You have the distance now. Is the distance from the crazy, or is it the same as the distance from the war? If that makes any sense, like, that does make sense. And the answer is no, because I just went back to Iraq a few months ago. And I was afraid I was going to, well, as Hemingway says, feel all the old feeling. And I didn't. I felt comfortable. I felt confident and strong and mentally strong and physically strong. And I wish, I wish every veteran could go back to the country uh, where they fought in civilian clothes and spend three days with a local family eating the food and staying in their houses and listening to Arabic or Pashto or whatever all day long and being a guest and actually meeting the people of the country where you fought your war. Because I don't know about you, I fought in Iraq in a bubble behind armored glass and a vest and a rifle and everything else. And there was just, even when you think you're interacting, you're not really interacting, it was completely different. And I felt really comfortable. And I had this talk with Larry Heineman, who is a Vietnam veteran and won the National Book Award for Paco's Story and wrote Close Quarters and just a tremendous writer and a tremendous man. And I remember a couple years ago, 
we were talking, and he, he was headed back to Vietnam again, and he goes back to Vietnam all the time, and it was a literary festival. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, Larry, I just cannot imagine a literary festival in Baghdad in like 2030. And he said, well, I couldn't imagine it either in 1975. Like, give yourself some time. And he was right. It took, you know, five years later, well, there's still no literary festival in Baghdad, but like I was back in the country and I was happy to be back there and I felt like I was learning so much. So to me, that shows that the war and the crazy are not so intermingled that going back to the war, because people are still shooting guns and bombs are still blowing up in Mosul and I'm still like picking up ordnance and I was afraid. I wasn't exactly afraid of flashbacks, but I was afraid that all of the old sensors would turn on and I would become hypervigilant and uh, it would be like the whole readjustment process and I wouldn't want to drive when I got home and like fireworks and like all the stuff, right? Didn't happen. Do you think it's fair to say because it wasn't... Because they weren't trying to kill me? Well, because it wasn't your fight this time. I think that's some of it. Uh, but the whole thing about those IEDs was it didn't matter. They just blew up with whoever's on the road, right? So we're driving past... IED craters on the road from Mosul to Talafar, and they look just like the craters did a decade ago. I mean, they're the same damn craters in some, in some of them, probably. This, you know, we're driving over culverts. If there's a bomb in the culvert of the wadi, it's going to take us out. Um, journalists have died. Did I mean, you slip back into that mode of being EOD guy that sees a pile of trash and thinks you may spot a wire? A, a, a little bit, but I felt more – it didn't feel – um, it felt reasonable, and I recognized it for what it was. And I was with a photographer, Andrea DiCenzo. She's a great photographer. And she's been living in Erbil for like three years. She, she, she has covered this war and covered ISIS and is really good at it. But there were a couple times when we'd walk in a house in like a bomb-making factory, and she'd step on the carpet, and I'd like grab her collar. <laughs> I'm like, never, never step on a carpet ever again. Like that's where the pressure plate goes. She's like, good point. Thank you. For that. So, I mean, but, but that gave me confidence that I could do my job safely. It didn't turn up the paranoia that, oh my God, there's a bomb in every hole here. You've written a lot about a wider range of topics, climate change, uh, you know, Canadian pipelines, not just military stuff. And I asked Sebastian Younger this question when he, when he was on, like, do you have any concern of being like pigeonholed as a, as a war guy? Yes. Um, that's a, that's a professional concern, maybe more than a personal one, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, like war no, is, totally. yeah, like war is important to me. Writing about war is important to me. I think it's, uh, I find it very compelling. I'd be happy to write a lot more about war, but professionally, I'm also interested in different stuff, the outdoors and, and the environment and, and these other things, like you say. So I think just for your growth as a writer, you'd like to be able to write about different things because... I don't know. I, I'm interested in other stuff as much as I'm interested. I have a new book coming out in March, and it's about canoeing, and it's history. And it's, you know, it's a, I feel really fortunate. It's a tremendous uh, opportunity, like, to be able to—not everybody gets a chance, yeah. you know, to write about something different. So you don't have any aversion. Like, you'll continue to cover war as long as you feel like it, but— I mean, I have some magazine stories I'm working on right now that are war-related and, and some that aren't. And a lot of writing about war is just the way the business works, you know, that editors like to team up with a writer on a certain topic, and they, they know that I'm the bomb guy. And if they want a climate change story, they just go to somebody else. Like, it's not personal. It's just like, well, 
I don't go to the climate change person for the bomb stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I go to them for the climate change stuff and I go to you for the bombs and you've, you've spent years developing this expertise, dance with the one that brung you, do the thing you're good at. So I think it's a natural tension. I think a lot of writers go through this. I'm guessing Sebastian said the same thing. Yeah, kind of. Well, he basically was like, I don't really give a shit what people peg me as. Because uh, I was like, dude, because at first, you know, he was called Hemingway, right? And then yeah. he was called uh, Ernie Pyle. And I was like, do you care that you've went from Hemingway to Ernie Pyle? He's like, not really. People call me what they want to call me. Uh, but same sentiment. Like he, yeah, it's he's not, just, he's over war at this point though. Yeah, it's not, it's not so much what people think of me. It's, it's just that I'm interested in doing other stuff too. Sebastian's told me that he's done with war. Like he is, yeah. between the documentaries and the things he's written, you know, he's checked the box. And I respect that. Yeah, I mean, he's done more than most have. Yeah. And so have you. So we have this national discussion now, women going in the infantry, you know, women in combat. Uh, the actual reality is from the jump of this thing, women have been involved in one form or another is, you know, you know, on female teams attached to special forces in EOD units. You know, they've been on the front lines and they've been dying on the front lines. Yeah, so women have been in combat for a really long time, and women have been in EOD for a very long time, and it's something that we're really proud of. And so when there was this, like you say, this discussion, and should women be allowed in combat or not, and they lifted the prohibition, I remember I sent a Facebook message to a female EOD tech friend, and I said, um, hey, have you been following the news? And she said something like, oh, I, I hear I'm allowed to be in combat now. I didn't get the message because I was in too much combat. Right. You know, so it really, it, it, it bothered me. And I think it bothered a lot of EOD techs. We've had this pride that women have done this job for a long time, uh, that people were acting and, and a lot of people in the news were acting like this was a new discussion. So I ended up doing a story for BuzzFeed on the first woman EOD tech because I didn't know who it was. And I wanted to be able to, you know, to, to tell that story you know, to be able to like lay down for the record, like, like who was this? Her name's Linda Cox. Uh, she got into the Air Force when it was still the Women's Air Force, the WAF, uh, in the early 1970s. She had, she, to get into the military at recruiting, she had to submit photos of herself in a skirt and all of her measurements, bust, waist, hips measurements to be allowed in. Uh, and then she volunteered for EOD because you could get paid an extra 50 bucks a month. This is like 1974. And when she volunteered, they, the Air Force said, so there's no regulation on the book. So they never imagined a woman would volunteer. So there was no regulation that said they couldn't do it. It's just that nobody had, had tried before. So they, on her application, they said, I'm sorry, you've checked the wrong box. You've checked F. You must mean M for male. And she said, no, this, I'm female. And they said, well, is your name right? Are you sure it's not Larry Cox or something? No, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely Linda. So they couldn't keep her out. So they let her go to school. She makes it through school. Uh, she, she succeeds. She's extremely smart and capable. And she says she was just like, quote, an itty bitty little thing. But she was able to, to do everything. She fights in the Gulf War. She got a bronze star in the Gulf War. She was clearing uh, Kuwaiti airfields of submunitions, like, you know, with the U.S. Army, like during the invasion. She ends up rising to the rank of chief, which is the highest enlisted rank in the Air Force. You know, she's extremely successful. And yeah, and she joins in 1974. So there's not a lot of women in EOD. It, 5% or something, you know, so there's always one or two in, in most units. Uh, to be one fair, or two there's women. not a lot of men in EOD either. 
right? Like he's not big. Well, that, like, right. Yes. I guess I was trying to figure out, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's only a couple thousand of us. So if there's a couple dozen, you know, if there's a hundred women or something, you know, that's like, a, there's probably not even a hundred women, but there's not just, it's not just that there's women in EOD, there's women in every branch. And if you're Navy EOD, they go to dive school and are attached to SEAL teams the same way. And like everybody, everybody does all the jobs. And I think it's more of a matter of pride. I've, I've had some terrible female EOD techs work for me, and I've had plenty of terrible male EOD techs work for me. Right. Like it's, not, it's not the determining factor of competency at all. Moral of the story is there's plenty of women that are badasses. Yes. One of the common arguments against having women in the front lines is like, oh, well, the men in that case will feel the need to be extra protective, and they'll put themselves in poor positions trying to protect the women. Did you ever experience anything like that? I have never felt that. And I, I never even, it never even like occurred to me that I should feel that. And um, it, there are female team leaders and they put on the bomb suit and they go take apart the device. And like, I don't, it's your job if you're a team leader and you do it. And like, I never looked up at my security and saw a woman on the turret gun and thought, oh, I better go take her position to protect her. Right. I was astounded to hear that argument. You go in with the assumption that we're all professionals. That if she's up there on the gun, she knows she's what she's doing. She's qualified to be there. Yes. Yeah. So when did you stop contracting? What year, roughly? Uh, I stopped contracting in about 2011. 2011. So about seven years ago. Right. Uh, things change very rapidly on the battlefield, right? Yes. So with seven years of distance, are you still qualified to like go be the bomb guy somewhere and like go teach young people how to do bombs or have the methods change so dramatically over seven years that you'd have to do a good bit of relearning yourself. Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll try not to give too technical of an answer. But the, the basic answer is some things never change. IEDs, improvised explosive devices, function. Uh, most of them are uh, electronic. Electronics don't change. Ohm's law is Ohm's law. Uh, the basic firing circuits have not changed in 30 or 40 years. Uh, so there's a lot of that stuff that is the same. Triggers can change. But, you know, in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, there's about... I don't know, uh, 20, 30 years of like bomb development. And all of the various steps in Northern Ireland that took 20 or 30 years took two or three years in Iraq. And I just, I happened to be there to see it go from simple pressure plates to cell phones. Yeah. You know, and, and if you can, you know, with this consumer electronics revolution where uh, everybody owns electronic devices that are extremely cheap and we throw out, if you can make a light turn on on the far side of the room, by pushing something in your hand, you can build a bomb. Not that I'm going to tell you how to do it. Right. But, okay, so what device is in your hand that you push the button and make the light turn on? Well, that might change a little bit, but it's amazing how consistent these things are, and it's amazing how similar ISIS's devices are to the same old things in, like, 2003 in Iraq. Yeah. They really don't change that much. So there's basically, I think I have this, you have, so you have pressure plates. Right. You have time detonation. Right. You have command detonated. Sure. And then you have like command wire detonate. And then you have like uh, some sort of signal detonation, right? The way the military categorizes them is you have victim operated. I step on something. I push on something. I open the door or whatever. I make it go off. You have timed ones. And then you have command operated, which means a spotter is watching you and yes, does something with a wire or a radio or something to make it go off. And again, those, well, and then there's suicide as well. Yeah. So those basic categories, I don't know, like the flavors change, but ice cream is still ice cream. So when I was in Afghanistan, the ones we were least afraid of were like the radio command that 
right? Because we had the, I don't know what you guys had, we had the Duke system, it was right. the jammer. Yes. So those, like, you know, we had green lights on, you're good to go, right? Right, right. You get that yellow light and it's like, oh shit, guys, something's trying to hit us. You Somebody that, is trying to kill me right now. You get that now. red light and it's like, oh shit, something's going to be bad real soon. Right. Uh, was that the same case for you guys? Or is it the radio ones you're not too worried about because you had a jamming system, but yeah, it's pressure hard. plates are fucking scary, man. Uh, they are scary because uh, pressure plates are scary because you, at a certain point, just assume that they're everywhere and that you're not going to find them. And if the bomber doesn't want you to find it, you're not going to find it. And so you just have to live life like you're going to step off a cliff at any second and have no idea. Uh, there, various things are dangerous for different reasons. Uh, some of those radio ones are still plenty scary, and I guess I'd rather not say why. <laughs> not to give anybody no, ideas on, on how the on why they might be scary and how they work. But there's no um, – it all depends on where you were. In Afghanistan, the pressure plates were by far the biggest threat and took a lot of legs. And I, I was astounded by the statistics on what percentage of people came home missing a leg or an arm. And that it, in Afghanistan, the amputation rate, amputation rate was worse than Vietnam during the surge. Um, the Surge of Afghanistan. That's really what drove me to write that second book, All the Ways Would Kill and Die, was, you know, I, I write this book, The Long Walk, about myself, but like we've already established, I had a very average experience, and people are asking me about my average experience, and I don't know if you would call this survivor's guilt, but I felt extremely compelled to write about people that had it far worse than me. Yeah. And so that started with, you know, families of people that have lost, you know, lost uh, Gold Star families and... Uh, amputees. I'll tell you, like my first tour in Afghanistan, I was a 50 cal gunner and I would rotate with, sometimes it'd be the first sergeant be in the front, sometimes the commander would be in the front and I would rotate with the first sergeant. So it's either in the front or the middle and those rides in Afghanistan, it's all dirt roads and it's all six hours. And when I was in that lead truck, man, like it's just eight hours of paranoia because yes. the one given is the pressure plate. It ain't going to be the last truck that sets it off. It's no. always that first truck or the second truck, if it happens to be when you drive off of it, that's the right. when it pops and initiates. But that was the scariest shit in the world to me was pressure plates, man. Yeah, it's the it. I think, and it again, it's the realization that we're not going to find it. That there's just you know there for but the grace of God go I. Yeah. Is, is the all the kick brooms and the rollers and the blowers and the and the drone on the route beforehand and um, you know husky and ground penetrating radar and everything else. We still, how many did we miss? Lots right. and lots. And even worse, how many did we miss that like civilians drove over? Many, many you more. Know? And we wouldn't get called and we wouldn't know about it. And the casualty statistics are completely skewed for the reality because we could only count what we knew about. And there's just large parts of the country where we just didn't know. All right. Well, we'll end it on that morbid thought. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time sitting down with us, man. Well, thank you for having me. I Oh, actually, make, I got one more. Yeah, yeah. How did it, we're going to have to do another wrap-up again. We're just so like, we uh, hey, you know what? Let's make a fucking opera, boys. How did that idea come about? Yeah, so when the, when the book came out uh, in July of 2012, the book being The Long Walk, I hopped on the roller coaster and was having all of these new experiences, Fresh Air, Terry Gross, TV, book tour, uh, New York Times Review, like, like all of these things that I never wanted to imagine happening were happening. And it was all new and it was all crazy. And so when my agent called and said, hey, I got a good idea for you and you should sit down and don't laugh. And he said, they want to make an opera. It was like, well, sure, of course they do. Because <laughs> like all this other stuff is happening, so why wouldn't they? So the, the quick story on that is 
there's not a lot of new opera made. There's some, but there's not a lot. And there's not a lot of training programs. But one of them is the American Lyric Theater in New York, which is kind of like a, a master's program to make new librettists who write the words and composers who do the music. And then when they graduate from this program, they pair them up and they give them some money and they say, go make an opera. And Jeremy Howard Beck, who's the composer, and Stephanie Fleischman, who's the librettist, got paired up and they said, congratulations, go make something. And Stephanie and Jeremy are not alike at all. They're two very different people. They're beautiful artists, but they're not they are not they don't have the same temperament or interests they couldn't agree jeremy wanted to like make something about space aliens stephanie wanted to do something you know much more theoretical uh like not even in reality eventually like out of desperation they go to the bookstore and they just take photos of covers to say like what books interested them and jeremy was at the annapolis barnes and noble and there on the new bookshelf was the long walk and he took a picture and sent it to Stephanie. And Stephanie said, oh, I've heard of that. I think it's good. Let's look at that one. And that's, you know, completely random serendipity is, is how it happened. So, you know, they read the book. The process is incredible. Uh, they break it down page by page. It is like the closest read that you could ever imagine, sentence by sentence. They make this giant Excel spreadsheet with every reference and every timeline and every piece of symbolism and imagery. And then they decide how they're going to put it back together on stage, condense most of it, expand the Jesse parts. And then they sent me what's called a treatment, which is just pages and pages of here's how we would turn your book into an opera. And it's things like, we imagine your sons as a boys choir that would sing together. And we imagine, you know, these, uh, like you lost three friends, Kermit and Jeff and Ricky. And so they're going to be like in parallel with, your three sons, and we're going to always try to like put them on stage together to show these parallels of your sons and your brothers, you know, and how they relate. And this is why I think large parts of the opera work better than the book, because you can do things on stage with music, with people in front of you. It is a emotional ride. Like if, if my book is drinking beer, this is whiskey, right? It is completely distilled down into this really tight package. And they sent the treatment, and I could tell how seriously they took it. And, and it was easy to say yes. And then that's just the start. Then they, they write the libretto. They workshop the music. It took years. I mean, this opera was on the superhighway for pace, and it still took two or three years to make. Quick for an opera, but really, like, the fact that these professional artists would devote that many years of their life to your story. It's just, I don't know, it's so humbling, right? So, so now here in Pittsburgh, this is production number three. It was amazing that it was performed once. There's a lot of opera that's written and then put in a drawer and is never performed even a single time. So it got its world premiere. That was great. It went to Salt Lake City last year, getting a second run uh, with a bunch of the original cast was really cool. Now this is a new production, new director, all new singers. So they've like, a whole group of artists have thought through it, like every decision a second time, you know, which is like another, I don't know, it's, it's like, it's all reimagined. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. I, I just like to show up and you walk in the theater and there are dozens of people like working on this project with your book. It's, You're not like uh, Stephen King hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. This is a, uh, he shouldn't you, hate the shining cause the shining is amazing, but no, I, I didn't know a lot about opera. Like, let's be honest. I did. I didn't know. Opera. It's not really vets 
lane of interest. It's not the reason I wrote the book, you know, because I imagined the opera version. Uh, I I knew some like Puccini or whatever. Uh, Modern opera, I'm generally, a lot of it is atonal. It can be hard to listen to, but I love the music. I'm going to spend the next two weeks like humming it in my head after these shows. I look forward to, you know, hearing all the music again. And as long as somebody's willing to put it on, do you feel like, is there a shelf life to it that you, 10 years from now, if it's still a thing, do you think you'll ever get to the point where like, all right, that chapter in me is over. Like you keep doing it, but I'm just, I'm going to walk away. I think the the dream is for all of these, for any artist project to outgrow them. And so there are very successful opera composers um, today. You know, John Adams is the most famous. He doesn't go to every performance of all of his operas. You know, the dream is you get to a point where it's being done so much, you just stop doing it. Truth is, like, I'm not involved in the production. I kind of show up at the end, talk to the cast, teach them how to hold their rifles so they do it right, do a few technical things, here's how to put on a bomb suit. But it's their energy and their creativity, and I'm, I'm the enjoyer of that. I'm not the producer of that. Very cool. That's a much happier note to end on. <laughs> Thank you again so much for taking what's now been an hour and a half of your time to sit down with us. Of course. Really appreciate it. Yes, it's, uh, it was a great time. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app. Let me do this and then tell me what you think. Are you ready? Thank you for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Brian Kastner. Brian is a former Air Force EOD officer who served two tours in Iraq. He's the officer of... Uh, I fucked it up. I always do. Are we swearing, by the way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're yeah. swearing. <laughs> for sure. Right. But that's okay. the truth about war, right? <laughs> it is. Uh, Just wanted to ask. <laughs>